Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing this morning? Good. If I look unfamiliar to you, that's okay. Um, my name is Jake, and I'm the 20s ministry director here. I came on a couple of weeks ago. And so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, that's okay. We'd love the opportunity to meet you after service, especially if you are in our 20s group or looking to get connected in our 20s group. Would love, love to meet you. Uh, before I came on at Harvest, I was in full-time ministry as the student ministry pastor for a local church called Redemption Church. Some of you may know this church. And so it is such an, an honor and privilege to serve you and to be a part of this church. Um, even though I may be unfamiliar to you, um, Harvest is not unfamiliar to me and my wife. We have been personally blessed by this place and blessed by the pastoral staff here. And so such a, a privilege to be here and to serve you in the same way. Um, here's a, I think there's a picture of my family. Uh, this is my family. My wife and I, we met at uh, Spring Arbor University. We got married, and we spent uh, about five years in full-time ministry. My wife is a second-grade teacher at North Point Christian. And so our family keeps growing. We have three kids. Brady's our oldest. He's three and a half. Blake is two. And Avery is five months. So if you're doing the math, like, we are in it. We are in it. So anyone with toddlers uh, at home, by a show of hands, a few of us? Okay, cool. So maybe we can swap notes after the service. Um, anything else you want to know about me, uh, feel free to seek me out. would love the opportunity again to meet you. But are you ready to dig into God's Word this morning? Awesome. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Jonah chapter 2. And if you were here last week, Pastor Dave kicked off our series with a powerful message from chapter 1. Right? We read chapter 1 sort of through this lens. Where do you find yourself in the story? And the natural conclusion for most of us is that we are a type of Jonah, aren't we? And if we read this account and relate to anyone in the story, we're most likely going to relate with Jonah. And unfortunately for us, uh, reading chapter 1, Jonah's not an impressive person, right? He's not overly impressive. We come to the end of chapter 1, and we have to ask the question, what's Jonah's problem? Like, what's his deal? Think about who Jonah is for a moment. He's a prophet or a messenger of God. And if we are to grade him on his performance, how's he doing, right? He's getting a failing grade. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach against it, to which Jonah effectively says, no, right? Scripture tells us then that he's running from the presence of God, getting a, as far away as possible from the very thing that God called him to do. So we see Jonah making decision after decision apart from God's will and apart from the work God has called him to do. So how would, how would we describe Jonah's spiritual condition after chapter 1? Well, Jonah's primary spiritual problem coming out of chapter 1 is that he has a lordship issue. It's a lordship issue. Well, how do we know that? Well, within the first couple of verses, we see this call from God to go to Nineveh, 
But Jonah wholeheartedly rejects the word of the Lord. After which we see decision, decision away from God and away from God's calling on his life. You see, Jonah's got a lot of issues. We talked about that last week, right? Including fear, hatred, maybe some self-righteousness. But ultimately, Jonah's heart issue is a lordship issue. He's in a state of rebellion and he's running from God. You guys seen this fly? I'm getting absolutely harassed up here. Um, so what does it mean, right, that Jonah has a lordship issue? The spiritual problem that shows up the moment Jonah dictates to God what he will and will not do. That's when it shows up. Chapter 1 really is Jonah's attempt to live apart from God, to be autonomous from God and his presence. So it's not, hey, I don't know what God wants me to do here. It's, I don't care what God wants me to do here. Two radically different postures and perspective. So it's a lordship issue that we're dealing with from chapter one. Jonah has something or someone else sitting on the throne of his heart and life. And that's the issue coming out of chapter one. By the way, this attitude that says, I don't care what God wants me to do is alive and well today, isn't it? This isn't a new spiritual problem. You see, the moment that we start asserting our rights is the moment that we've revealed a heart issue in ourself. We've revealed our true intentions. A lordship issue appears when I decided that God is not the ultimate authority in my life, or at least in this particular area of my life. It's when I assert my opinions, my rights, and my wants apart from submission to God. You see, I've decided what's best for me, and I'm going to go my own way. Mark Sayers is a pastor and author from Australia, and he summarizes our current culture in this way. He says, today, we want the kingdom of God without the king. In other words, we want the benefits of God's kingdom without the lordship of the king. We desire things like fulfillment, peace, love, justice, acceptance, but not in the way of God's design and not in the way of God's rule. Instead, we want to decide what is best for ourselves in obtaining these things. So many of us will, will bury ourselves in a career seeking fulfillment. Some of us might buy things we need to impress people we don't know in order to be accepted. Maybe you've been wounded by a relationship and you thought just gossip would help in your healing process, right? I could go on all day, but all the ways that we want the kingdom of God, the benefits of the kingdom without the lordship of the king, going about it in his way. So often we choose our own path and our own way to achieve these things. So it's like this, right? How many of you have a Bible? Take your Bible if you have it and put it over your head, right? Phones, iPads, all good, right? This is the word of God, and we submit ourselves under the authority of God's word. This is what we come to do every Sunday, to form our life around 
the person and work and ministry of Jesus. You can put your Bibles down because, you know, some of us have bigger Bibles, and I see arms getting lower and lower, right? But this is what we do. We come in here, sit under the authority of God's Word. God's Word tells us what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is untrue, what is gospel and what is anti-gospel. There is no substitute for God's Word in the life of a believer. Amen? Through the Holy Spirit, what we're doing is we're forming our life around this book. It is the plumb line in which our life is measured. But what is happening in our culture and so often what we do in our lives is that we are dictating to God what is right for us. Instead of sitting under the authority of God's word, I'm presiding over God's word. And I'm deciding what I will and will not accept from it. You see, when we approach God's word as optional instead of foundational, we put ourselves in greater authority than God, or we think we do. And this is what's happening in Jonah. It's an unwillingness to trust God and to take him at his word. So it's a lordship issue. We want the benefits of God's kingdom without the lordship of the king. And what many of us have done is we've created space in our lives where God has no say in the matter whatsoever. Whether it be your family life, your free time, your career or business, your finances, relationships. It's this posture of, I know what God's word says about this, but I'm going to do my own thing. Jonah's spiritual problem comes down to a lordship issue. And this is the big question that we're wrestling with today. It's this, how long and how far will you run from God? How long and how far will you run from God? Is it possible that there is an area in your life that is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Could it be possible that you, like Jonah, have known God for some time? You've been walking with him, but you've developed a heart issue that needs to be addressed this week. Where are you asserting your rights, your wants, and your agenda to God? This is the spiritual problem that we are addressing this morning. Aren't I lucky, the new guy? Chapter 1, this is the problem, and chapter 2, it's going to be dealt with. Chapter 2 is literally Jonah praying from the belly of a fish. And we always make a big deal about the fish. Jonah and the fish, whale, right? They will always be combined together. You cannot separate them. It's sort of like Jake from State Farm. I know, I'm on to you. I knew as soon as I came up here, 82% of you were going to ask me if I'm from State Farm. Definitely not wearing khakis this morning, right? But it's it's Jonah and the fish. You cannot separate these two. But after studying chapter 2 and looking at this heart issue, the big deal is not the fish. It's what happens inside of the fish that's a big deal. Really, the story is about a restored relationship between Jonah and God. And that's the true miracle that takes place in this story. So here's, here's my invitation for us this morning Let's lean into Jonah chapter 2 and evaluate together 
where there might be a lordship in our life. I'm having a lordship issue with this fly right now. I'll tell you what. Um, With open hands, right? Let's approach God's word together. Lord, is there an area in my life where I'm not in submission to you? Is there an area where I'm asserting my rights and my agenda? Lord, where have I gone outside your plan and your design? Where am I avoiding issues in my life and where am I tolerating sin? These are the questions that we're asking this morning. And so let's just lean into that. Is it possible that there's a lordship issue in your heart, in your life? If you've been a follower for Jesus for any length of time, you'll have different seasons of life. Moments where you're faithful and moments where you are unfaithful. Seasons where you feel close to God and seasons where he feels distant. And this prayer almost reads like a testimony of Jonah. Here's what it's like to run from God, and here's what God did to bring me back to himself. That's chapter 2. So if you're with me, here's the first thing that we see coming out of chapter 2, and it's this. God is not afraid to let you hit bottom. God is not afraid to let you hit bottom. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Jonah tried really hard to live in a ton of his life apart from God's presence and God's design for him. He made decision after decision contrary to God's way and God's rule. One author summarizes Jonah's situation in this way. He says, every step away from God is a step down. What happens if you step down long enough and far enough? Where do you end up? We end up at the bottom. And this is where Jonah is. This is where Jonah makes his prayer. How do we know this? Well, can I draw your attention to the tone of the prayer? He says this in verse 1, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. This isn't a casual cry for help. This is desperation. I don't know where else to go. I don't know where else to turn. Lord, help me. And without a doubt, this is the lowest point of Jonah's life and ministry. He's at the bottom. He's in crisis. Where Jonah refused to pray in chapter 1, we see him praying in chapter 2. So the question is, what's the difference? Well, you thought drowning in the ocean was bad. Try getting swallowed by a sea creature, right? That's one, one explanation. But here's what's happening. God is allowing Jonah to feel the consequence of his sin the consequence of his lordship issue and his running. Jonah recognizes God's involvement in verse 3. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. As Jonah ran from the presence of God, God allowed Jonah to feel the consequence of his sin. This is the sum of all of his sinful and selfish decisions he made apart from God, coming to bear fruit in his life. Jonah, you want a life apart from God? You want to assert your rights and your agenda? This is where it leads. 
as he's bobbing around in the ocean about to die. So the question is this, who's responsible for Jonah's situation? Is God responsible for Jonah's situation or is Jonah responsible? It's a trick question. Jonah is responsible for his sinful decisions and for his rebellion. And what Jonah is recognizing is that God allowed him to feel the weight of his rebellion. Bad decision after bad decision, running from God and running from the things that he's called to do, ultimately leads him into crisis. So what's happening? Well, Jonah is waking up to the severity and the reality of his sin. It's been said that sin will always take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to spend. Many of us are asleep to the harmfulness and severity of our sin. And God is not afraid to let you hit bottom if that's what it takes to get your attention. For you to wake up to the urgency of your sin. And this is not because God is mean. It's not because he's out of control or vindictive. It's because God cares for you. And would rather have you be anywhere else other than a place of disobedience. A few weeks ago, we were at my in-law's cottage. They bought a cottage over the winter, and they've been flipping it over the spring and summer. So we had an opportunity to go out there and see all the progress that they made. And so brought the whole family out and have two toddler boys, one's three and a half and one's two, and they just feed off each other. And every time as a father I walk into a new situation, I ask myself two questions. What can my boys break here? That's the first question. The second question is where can my boys hurt themselves? And I got to tell you, they're always surprising me. I'm always surprised at new ways they are figuring this out. But, of course, as we get to this dock and this cottage, they are drawn to this long aluminum dock that goes, projects into the water. And, of course, they're, they're drawn to it. And they're running around, and I'm like, be careful, don't step there, don't break that, don't touch that, right? What's my heartbeat? Well, don't break something, but also don't hurt yourself. And so as they're running back and forth, I'm assessing the situation, I'm like, we are moments away from a disaster. Neither one of them know how to swim, and neither one of them are wearing life jackets. So I'm like, Leah, run up, grab the life jackets, and I'll throw them on. So she comes down with the life jackets, and what happens, right? As soon as I put the life jacket on my two-year-old Blake, he looks at me, and he starts running. He's got this chicken wing thing going on, which I know he's in rebellion when he's doing this, right? He's running all the way down the dock, and he gets to the edge, and he looks over to look at the water, and completes a near-perfect Olympic dive into the water. I'm like, this kid's got potential. <laughs> so in this moment, I scooped him up, right, and pulled him out of the water, and he's looking around like this. But in that moment, I had Blake's attention. In that moment, Blake was feeling the consequence of his running and his sin. Now, here's a question. Was my son in any real danger? Like, I was right behind him. He was underwater in less than a second. Was he in any real danger? Was this moment out of my control? 
Was my son ever alone in this moment? Of course not. Of course not. Not for a moment. But Blake felt the weight of his situation. Please listen. When God allows you to feel the seriousness of your situation and sinfulness, it's not because he's careless, it's not because he's absent, it's not because he doesn't care for you. It's because your sinfulness is leading you further away from him. And he's waking you up to that reality. And I bet if I passed the mic around the room, many of our testimonies, like Jonah, would involve a moment of crisis where we hit the bottom, where God allowed us to feel the weight of our sin, the consequences of our sinful actions all came crashing down on us. Listen, God's not afraid to let you hit bottom if that's what it takes for you to wake up. If you're here this morning and your life is starting to unravel because of your sinful choices, that is the natural outcome of living a life apart from from God. And the good news is that if you're feeling the seriousness and the urgency of your sin, God wants to do a work in your life. He wants to introduce you to his mercy. There's a specific way God deals with Jonah's rebellion. And it's this, point number two. God answers your rebellion with his mercy. God answers your rebellion with his mercy. Verse four says this. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds are wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah tells us what it's like to reach the bottom. Paraphrasing, verse 4, it feels like I'm being driven from God's sight. Verse 5, it, said, it feels like the waters are closing in to consume me. I feel so low, I'm at the roots of the mountains. Verse 6, it feels like the bars of this prison have locked, me, locked over me forever. Jonah's already feeling the weight of his sin. And what he's concluded here is that he is completely unable to rescue himself from this situation. In the ancient world, the city represented chaos. It was an abyss. And Jonah believes that he's in too deep, he's gone too far, and he recognizes his inability to save himself from this abyss. He's sinking further and further. There's nothing that Jonah can do about his sin problem. He cannot work his way out. He cannot spend his way out or talk his way out. Here's a question. Does Jonah deserve to die for his rebellion? Like, would God be just in allowing Jonah to die in this moment? This is another trick question. When we, as finite, sinful creatures, sin against a holy, infinite God, the penalty is death. 
Sin is what fractures and severs our relationship to a holy God. So what is the cost of our rebellion, the cost of our running, the cost of our lordship issue? Well, it's eternal death and God's judgment. That's what we deserve as runners and rebels against a holy God. And can we just pause? Can we just do a timeout real quick? And just recognize in this moment, this is one of the difficult truths to accept. We talk about God's authority in our life. This truth is especially difficult. Many of us have really good justifications for the sins that we allow in our life. We downplay the seriousness of our sin. Our inner lawyer comes out to protect us and defend ourselves. But here is the hard truth. You cannot fix your sin problem apart from God. And this is what Jonah recognizes about his situation in this moment. And I know this feels heavy, but please understand something. We cannot truly value and appreciate God's mercy without first understanding the heaviness of our sin the gravity of our situation. And it's from this understanding where we find hope. Look at the second part of verse 4. He says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 6, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. What is Jonah talking about? He's still in the belly of the whale. But his gaze is turning vertical. He has a reason for hope. What is Jonah talking about? Well, if you jump back to 117 for a second, it should be on the same page or at least a page over. It says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What Jonah is referring to is God's mercy demonstrated through the fish. The word I want you to circle or highlight or at least recognize is this word appointed. Some of your Bibles may say that God had appointed a, a fish to swallow Jonah. So in the same way that the sailors and Jonah knew that the storm was from God, he recognizes God's hand all over this fish. You see, what God demonstrates to Jonah in this moment is what Tim Keller calls a severe mercy. When God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah, the fish was created and sent ahead of time for one purpose, to demonstrate God's saving mercy to Jonah. Even before Jonah left port, and as Jonah is sinking in this prison abyss, the fish had been sent by God to serve as an instrument of his mercy. Where Jonah deserved death, God showed mercy by, by preserving his life in a fish for three days and three nights. So can we just agree that God um, could have been more merciful to Jonah in other ways? Like he could have been more merciful. Like I imagine God sort of using the ocean to sort of 
pull Jonah out of the water and float him back up onto the boat, you know, like the Disney movie Moana. I'm in toddler world right now, so if you know, you know, right? Like God could have been more merciful in different ways. But God uses the uncomfortable, painful, and unusual method a three-day, three-night stay in the belly of a fish. So do you hear the tone change in this passage? We went from despair to hope. So what is the thing that helped Jonah move from despair to hope? Well, it's God's mercy. In the same way that God demonstrates mercy to Jonah through the fish, God has demonstrated his mercy to you and I through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? The truth is that we are in a dangerous place without the mercy of God. We can't talk about God's mercy and not talk about our own sin. Sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God that requires an infinite sacrifice a requirement that you and I cannot make. There's nothing you can do to make things right with God. And this is where God's mercy steps in. To do the heavy lifting, mercy in its most basic form alleviates, it removes, it does the hard work of radically changing your situation. Ultimately, mercy is an expression of God's love toward you, often despite you. And God moves towards you in mercy on account, not on account of who you are, but on account of who he is. Mercy is costly because it absorbs the penalty of your rebellion and my rebellion, our running, our lordship issue. And Jesus demonstrated his mercy to you and I by dying on the cross for our sins, forever taking the penalty of our rebellion and lordship issue. In other words, in Jesus, the penalty of your lordship issue is no longer held against you. And it's the power of mercy, God's mercy, feeling the weight of our own sin and the gravity of our situation that causes a turning point in our lives. I remember sitting in youth group in high school and God's word was just piercing my heart. His Holy Spirit was just gripping my heart in a message that our youth pastor was bringing. So much so that I was convicted of a lordship issue in my life. And I felt the weight of my sin, the harmfulness of it. And so I decided it was time to surrender and confess that. So when I got home, I called a meeting with my parents and I had them come into my room and as I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, I just broke down. And can we just agree as a high school student, confessing secret sin to your parents is terrifying, it's painful and uncomfortable. Can we just acknowledge that? So I broke out. And there's this desperation crying for help. And here's what I was expecting, right? I was expecting severe punishment. I was expecting rejection and disappointment. But what happened next surprised me. As I'm sitting there in just the messiness of my own life, my parents did something amazing. They hugged me 
they cried with me and they prayed with me. No punishment, just severe mercy. My parents in that moment were a physical representation of the mercy of God. Experiencing God's mercy is powerful. It's a turning point. It was a turning point for me in my life. So much so that I don't know if I'd be in this church today and I certainly wouldn't be on this stage. God's mercy has the power to radically change your situation. Never underestimate the power of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Mercy says this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. God answers your rebellion with his mercy. So my big question for you, if God's mercy is available to you, how long and how far will you continue to run from God? I've known many people over the years who are absolutely haunted by their past, spending the majority of their life living from the memory of their failures, telling themselves, God can't use me. I've done too much. I went too far. It's been going on too long. There's no hope for me. This is you. God's mercy in Christ Jesus frees you from that type of burden. It's God's mercy that allows you to turn back to him. The truth is that God's not done with you. He hasn't written you off. He hasn't given up on you. And like Jonah, he's refining you and he's restoring you to himself. God answers your rebellion with his mercy. So how far and how long will you run? Here's the final thing we see from Jonah's prayer. You cannot outrun God's steadfast love for you. You cannot outrun God's steadfast love for you. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's as low as he's ever been. And it's in this place he remembered the Lord. That is to say, he remembered the character of God. He remembered who God is and what God is like and what moves God to act. And as a prophet, part of the covenant people of Israel, I imagine Jonah being in crisis, being as low as he can be, feeling alone, feeling defeated, feeling rejected, remembering what God is like, remembering God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then in verse 8, we see almost this self-reflection. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I want to highlight this word steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is difficult to translate in English. Most of us know it as grace, but it's actually three acts of love in one word. I think the literal translation is loyal love. Loyal love. The Bible Project, a great resource if you are learning the Bible for any 
um, length of time, describes three acts in this way. It's love, it's generosity, and it's unconditional commitment. It's a promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care for you. And here's what Jonah is saying. When I assert my way, I forsake God's grace. I reject it. I want God's love. I want his generosity. I want his unconditional commitment. But I'm still all about my agenda. I want to call the shots. I want to determine what's right and wrong for me. And when we fail to see the seriousness of our lordship issue, we forfeit the grace that could be ours in God. And can we just agree on one thing? That God is infinitely better at pursuing you than you are at rejecting him? Just agree on that? Why is that? Loyal love. No matter how hard you dig in your heels, no matter how hard or how long you run, God is relentlessly pursuing you. When you run, he pursues. When you are unfaithful, he is faithful. When you break your promises, he keeps his word. And what we see in Jonah and ultimately in Jesus Christ is that you cannot outrun the steadfast, God's steadfast love for you. In the highs and the lows, in the faithfulness and unfaithfulness, God is relentlessly committed to you. It's loyal love. So he, it's here, right, at the end of chapter 2 that we see the, the character of God on full display. God's activity toward Jonah throughout this whole ordeal has been motivated by deep personal care for Jonah. God, in his wisdom, knew exactly what Jonah needed to bring him back to himself. The true miracle in this story is a restored relationship between Jonah and God, a rebellious runner and sinner and a gracious God. And what comes next is one of the most foundational statements in all of Scripture. Verse 9, he says this, But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. What is Jonah's response to a restored relationship with God? It's life-changing gratitude. I give up my rights. I surrender my will. I'm done with living for myself. The lordship issue has been addressed. And what we are seeing in Jonah is a life change on account of God's steadfast love for him. And where Jonah's prayer started out as a cry for help, it ends with a declaration and a shout of praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amazing. That is to say, salvation only belongs to God. In every story of the Bible, in every moment of human history, and in every season of life, salvation only belongs to God. That's the statement. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, puts it this way. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And as we wrap up this morning, let's revisit our question. 
How long and how far will you continue to run from God? How long and how far will you continue to run from God? If God's mercy and his steadfast love is available to you, what's holding you back from surrendering to him? Maybe you've been running from the Lord and you don't feel the seriousness of your sin. Please understand something. Everything that you do is done in the face of God. And you may be fooling yourself. You may be fooling the people around you. But as you step, take steps away from God, you're going to hit bottom. You're going to be found out. Your sin will find you out. And on that day, when you're at the bottom, when you're in crisis and your life is completely falling apart, I ask you to remember one thing. Remember the character of God. Remember his steadfast love for you and his mercy. Maybe you walked in this morning and you are feeling the weight of your sin. During our study in Jonah chapter 2, God's just been squeezing your heart. God's gripped your heart this morning about a lordship issue that needs to be addressed, don't leave without asking for help. We're going to have a time to respond with a, a final song, but we have pastors up here at the end of the service. You need to talk to somebody. Don't leave with unresolved heart issues. It's not a safer place to confess that sin. Don't allow your fear and comfort to keep you from accepting God's mercy and God's grace. You know, reading Jonah chapter 2, it's amazing that we choose to run, isn't it? But here we are, rebels and runners. When we see God accurately, it's hard to imagine that we'd ever run from him. So as we sing this song, have the courage to turn back to God. The thing about running is that we all get tired, right? There's not a better time to rest in God's loyal love. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we're so thankful for this time. We're so thankful for your wisdom. And Lord, when we feel the heaviness and the weight of our sin, Lord, we just ask that we'd have the courage to turn to you because we know this, that you are merciful. You are gracious. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the courage to identify a lordship issue in our life and to turn back to you. Praise in Jesus' name.